Uh, I invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 21 and following in a minute. Uh, but I want to mention something to you. This coming week, we're going to be putting together a video. Uh, it'll be a small, short video, but uh, I'll be talking about options for personal devotions, personal Bible reading. There are some really cool um, tools that are now out there. There's some journals that uh, do things differently with Scripture. There's a, there's a, a Bible now that has a uh, place for journaling within it. There's some classic Bible reading schedules. There's just a, a lot of different tools. I'm going to be trying to quickly present you with some ideas because as you go into a new year, Many of us like to start a new way of maybe looking at the Scripture, reading the Scripture, getting into the Scripture. Maybe you've never done that regularly. Uh, this video will be on our website. It'll, it'll be short. Uh, did I mention it'll be short? This, I'm saying this for the guys, a short video. And, but really, just trying to give you some, some ideas of ways to maybe creatively get into the Scripture this year, get on a plan. Having a plan helps, so you don't have to make that decision every day, well, where should I read today? And uh, that'll be available. We'll, we'll highlight it next Sunday as well. We, of course, do the Living Nativity each year, and Mike's already talked about that. But in our Living Nativity, we have 13 scenes, and there's one scene that is particularly central to everything because we're telling the story of Christmas. And the seventh scene um, is actually the scene that is the stable scene. Is the scene where Joseph and Mary are there. They're sitting. They've got the manger just like this in front of them. They've got usually a couple of goats or sheep, usually a donkey's in the back there. And it's a central scene. It's not the most important scene theologically, certainly. The, the cross scene, the resurrection scene, the, re, the return of Jesus to heaven. Um, it's not the, the most bells and whistly scene in the nativity. Uh, certainly there are others where there are flying angels coming in, Jesus going back up into the cloud in heaven and so forth. But it's central to the whole message of the Christmas story. And we have in that little scene, we have a very lifelike doll uh, that serves as the, the baby Jesus. And back a number of years ago when I was still the overseer of the um, living nativity, I got a call. We were all set to go. The room was filled. Um, we had all our groups in here. We had a little bit of a line, and we had all of the uh, staff were in the field. We had the guides ready to go. Everything was set to go, and I got a message on my walkie-talkie, this ominous message, we have lost baby Jesus. <laughs> now, this was catastrophic. Uh, this was a truly a cosmic calamity, a hostage crisis. I mean, this was um, Lindbergh baby loss type of stuff because we, <laughs> you can't run the program without the central seam having the central character. So for 15 minutes, cast and everybody is hunting everywhere to find where did we put from the previous weekend the baby Jesus. We had lines getting farther and farther out on the sidewalk. We had to hold up the whole program until we found baby Jesus. We found him, and we were able to run the program. But we found that the whole show was stopped until we found Jesus. That, of course, is not necessarily true with the cultural celebration of Christmas. The show does go on. And I would suggest even for many of us as people of faith, the show does go on. That the show, this program, this season, 
can go on without us personally encountering and finding Christ. Now, you're here today, which is a strong argument that you don't want that to be true, that you want to encounter Christ, you want to hear from him. But we labor with the busyness of the season, the many things that are on our minds that are grabbing our attention, put the squeeze on our time and energy. But at least our goal is to find Christ. Well, it's interesting. In the gospel stories, there are a number of people that found Jesus. But there are two people that are exceptional in the story. There are two people, at least one of them was definitely a senior citizen, perhaps both of them. Not only did they find Jesus, they were expecting Jesus. They had been tipped off that Jesus actually was going to be among them. And I'd like to look at these two individuals here in Luke chapter 2, a man named Simeon, a woman named Anna, and let us hear their story. Lost my page. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verse 21 and, and following. On the eighth day, and by the way, Jesus, it's going to talk about the eighth day when he circumcised, and then the day when he was given for the purification, that was the 40th day of a Jewish child. So he's 40 days old when this takes place. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and and was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we gather today, and we do want to see Christ. Lord, as we seek to have our own hearts stilled in the next few minutes, I pray that you would speak into our lives. Lord, the very things that these, this man and this woman were looking 
to you to provide through Jesus, I think is what many of us need today. So teach us about that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this passage, we read about two people who were expecting the coming of the Messiah. Simeon had been told that the Messiah would come in his lifetime. Anna was prompted to seek him out, and in the multitudes of people, multitudes of families there at that celebration in the, in, in the Jerusalem temple context, she recognizes and actually pursues Jesus, prompted by the Spirit. The question is, why these two? Why were these two chosen to recognize the child Messiah? to seek him and to take him into their arms, to speak of his coming to other people. Why these two? I actually think the way the text is written, we're encouraged to ask the question, why them? Because there's data giving us about them. It seems as if the Lord is expecting us to say, why did these two get the tip off? Why did they get the prompting that he's there and come on over? And, and actually, he, before, for at least in Simeon's case, before he even came, that he was going to come. Why these two? Well, there's some characteristics certainly that jump out at us, certainly it's described Simeon as a devout man, full of the Holy Spirit. It talks about Anna as a person, of, a woman of prayer. But there's a characteristic that seems to jump off the page because it's a phrase that is used of both of them. It's the same word in the original. It says this way in verse 25 of Simeon. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. And then the same word is used of Anna in verse 38. She was looking, among others, for the redemption of Jerusalem. They were looking, longing, pursuing. This was a preoccupying concern in their lives. Both of these phrases, longing for the consolation of Israel, looking, looking for the consolation of Israel, looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, were weighted theological concepts. They were both looking for God to do something, for God to show up in a unique and special way. You see, for 400 years prior to this, and, and historians have called this in Israel's history, the 400 silent years. And during this time, Israel had lived under the, the, the totalitarian control of another government. They were under someone else's rules, the red Roman flag was hung over the palace of Jerusalem. There had not been prophetic messages from God for 400 years, and the people of Israel recognized that God had surely removed His blessing from His people. The cry of the hearts of these aged saints on others that loved God is really captured in the Christmas carol O come, O come, Emmanuel. I'd read just one part of it. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. And then the refrain, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. 
their intense looking and longing for God to move in their lives and in the life of their nation was what prompted God to grant these two dear people the privilege of finding the promised Messiah. I believe there is a beautiful lesson here for us. First, in looking at what does it mean that they were looking? And second of all, what were they looking for? Because the two qualities that we see that they were looking for is exactly what I would suggest many of us are looking for today. The first thing we find, how to be looking for Christ, we... we, we think what looking for Christ does not involve. These people were not just hanging around, writing off life as horrible, waiting for the day when they could escape. They, they were not just living life, just come on and beam me up, Scotty. I mean, I want out. Get me out of here. No, th- th- there was a different way they were doing life. These were not religious hermits living in a, a contemporary um, convent or monastery. They were in the hub of life, in the the hub of Jerusalem. Anna will become an active evangelist for Jesus there in in the temple areas. Simeon is not in the temple. He is called to the temple. Maybe he's a merchant. Maybe We don't know how old he is. Uh, he may have been older. If he was, he's probably a retired businessman, an active man. He's not a priest. He's not a Pharisee. He, he's not a scribe. He's just a guy. She's just a woman. They're just doing life there in Jerusalem. The spectacular quality of these people is how unspectacular they were. Well, what were they looking for? Well, there were two things that looking for Christ involves. It it involved, first of all, relying on God in light of the grace that's already given. They were living life regularly, consistently, actively. They were doing exactly what Jesus says we're supposed to be doing as we also look for his second coming. He says it this way in a parable in Luke 19, 13. He describes himself as the nobleman, and he says, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Anna's involved. Yes, at this time in her life, a lot of her ministry is praying, fasting and praying. She's an 84-year-old woman. Every day she's up and spends the morning in the temple fasting, praying. She does it at night. I mean, she's actively involved. As soon as she meets Christ, she's telling everybody. This is a woman that's not put herself into retirement of spiritual influence. She's devoting her life to doing business in the hands of God. Simeon, I, I, there's nothing in the text that says he was old, but all the pictures of him say he's old because he said, now I can depart in peace. I don't know that that means that he's ready to depart, but he said, I, I've seen what I wanted to see. I've seen the Christ. But every part of this is, this is a picture of a man that's actively engaged in his life. He's somewhere in Jerusalem. The Lord says, go, this is the day. Get to, Jer- get to the temple. And he goes and he encounters Joseph and Mary with Jesus. These are people doing life. And even though they're 84 years old, Anna does not look at herself as somebody who's on, that's retired from God's I can do it through you list. She's engaged in, in doing life. He's engaged in doing life. They're doing life with God and for God. And the other thing that we see that's true of them is they are trusting in a future when God will complete 
his unfulfilled promises. Anna and Simeon did this. This is normative for all of God's children, even today. Hebrews 9 says it this way, verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. God's people in the first century were eagerly waiting for him. God's people in the 21st century are eagerly waiting for him. And this is the picture of people that are described as longing for Christ. These two characteristics, number one, they're actively engaged in influencing and changing their world, no matter what age they are. And secondly, they're eagerly waiting for Christ to return. But I want to focus on this part. What should we be looking to Christ for? What, are the, what were they looking for? And there are two things described. Number one was they were looking for the consolation of Israel. Secondly, they were looking for redemption in, in Jerusalem. The, comfort, the con, consolation of Israel was a theological term. It actually was referring to comfort for losses and miseries of life. It's a particularly theologically pregnant term in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there are 27 chapters, a, a section of 27 chapters, some of the most famous scripture of all the Bible, are referencing this thing called the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel literally means the comfort of Israel. Comfort is the usual English translating of the, the word consolation. It's referring to the promise of Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66, probably the most spectacular prophetic literature of the entire Bible. Some of the most well-known verses that you have quoted uh, are from those. Isaiah 53 is in that section about uh, the, the, the one who will come, stricken, smitten of God, uh, pierced for our, our transgressions. It begins with this statement, comfort, comfort my people in Isaiah 40, verse 1 and 2. The focus is that God will bring to his people comfort. It says it this way in Isaiah 51, verse 12. We go to the next one. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that fear mere mortals, human beings who are but grass? These double calamities have come upon you, ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can comfort you? And the answer in these chapters is that, that God himself will, will, will comfort them in a unique and particular way. Israel had looked for a day when the days of, this, of disgrace and sorrow would be brought to an end. They had experienced glory and favor unto God. But those days are distant memories replaced by a sense of sorrow and loss. They look for a day of comfort and restored joy. Isaiah 49 verse 13 says it this way. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And then it ends in Isaiah 66. And again, there are many others I'm not reading. Where it says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. There will be the consolation, the comfort of Jerusalem. But the reality of all of these passages in Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66 is this. This consolation, this comfort will be offered in a person. 
That's why in our text this morning, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25 and 26, Simeon's experience is described this way. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one, as the word literally means, the Messiah, will be the means of the the consolation, the comfort of Israel. Again, Philip Brooks' Christmas Carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, focuses on this. O Little Town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, for Christ is born to Mary. It is Christ that comforts and consoles. And God's people, personified in Simeon, look towards he that brings comfort. They were anticipating his coming. The ones that looked for Christ to be the source of comfort, consolation, were the ones that ultimately encountered Jesus. Many of you are feeling loss and sorrow today. Quite honestly, the holidays are an amplifier of feelings of sorrow and loss for many. Parents feel sorrow. Many of you feel sorrow. For some parents, there's the sorrow of Third John's statement, where John said, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in truth. Of course, the flip side of that record is, I have no greater sorrow than when my children do not walk in truth. Some of you carry the sorrow every day of the child who does not yet walk in truth, the wandering child, the lamb not yet safely in the fold. Some of you are widowers and widowers and widows who feel sorrow And so much of who you are is gone. Some of you are dreamers with broken dreams and know the sorrow of those broken and shattered dreams or seemingly shattered dreams. Lovers with lost partners feel sorrow. People with regrets for choices made, words spoken, deeds done feel sorrow. And what the scripture reminds us and the story reminds us and and the message of of, uh, Simeon reminds us is that if there is any deep longing in your heart for a consolation and comfort that this world has not satisfied, lift your gaze toward the beloved son. Don't seek that comfort, that consolation anywhere but in him. Jesus is God's comforter. He is the promised consoler of the wounded heart. This is a season perhaps that God is saying in your sorrow, in the amplification of your mourning, your loss, your grief, lean into Christ. He is the consoler of his people. He is the comforter. Of Israel. The second thing that we are encouraged to look to him to is for deliverance from continual bondage and powers of life. In verse 38, it talks about Anna and others like her 
watching for the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, this is a, a theological term. It was a specific one. It's mentioned in Isaiah 52, verse 9, where both of these elements, consolation and redemption, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has consoled his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. To wait for the redemption of Jerusalem and the consolation of God's people is to say two different things, but they follow parallel tracks. The consolation offered here speaks to those longings for healing and restoration from sin, from sin and all the past losses and miseries of life. Consolation is when God comes to heal and restore and revive all that has been thrown away or lost. Redemption speaks to our need to be delivered from powers that still hold us in bondage. Redemption is a work of power to save from enemies that still threaten us. We can see redemption described in the book of Luke in chapter 1. The only other time the word redemption is, is mentioned in the book of Luke. And here it is in, in, in a prophetic statement by Zechariah, who is the dad of uh, John the Baptist, an old man at the time when he miraculously, he and his, his older wife, miraculously conceive and have a son. And here's what he said about the redemption that would come. In verse uh, chapter 1, I believe it's verse 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us that we should be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. In this passage, we're reminded that when Luke talks about the redemption that Christ would bring, it's not focused just on the narrow concept of him being the redeemer from sins that, that buys us out and, 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 and brings salvific redemption. It's broader than that. For him, it is a, a redemption in terms of power. It is a, he says that he will redeem his people and raise up a horn of salvation for us. A horn of salvation means a powerful salvation because like the horn of a great bull, it pictures power. Verse 71 shows why such power will be needed. He will save us from our enemies and from the, the hand of those who hate us. So the second reason that makes sense to set your heart on Christ is that he will fulfill your longings for victory over the forces that bind you. On the one hand, there is comfort for losses and sorrow and, and the brokenness we carry in our hearts. On the other hand, we look to Christ to be the source of empowerment, to bring conquest in areas of our life that we are utterly incapable of vanquishing. These two things are presented to us as what we're to look to Christ for in this Christmas season. Look to him for consolation and healing. Look to him for deliverance from bondage. Look to Christ. I'd like to close this morning with a story. It's actually a personal story that was told by a guy in 1850. He wrote about a, a, a situation that happened to him in the midst of a very famous snowstorm in London, England, and he was, a, 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 at the time, a young man he became a very famous man, at least in the history of the church. He's called the Prince of Preachers by many, probably the greatest preacher in the history of the English language, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. 
And Charles Spurgeon is telling the story of how he learned to look to Christ. As Simeon and Anna were looking towards Christ, looking for consolation, looking for for redemptive power to deliver them. I'd like to read you his own account of this interesting story. He was on his way to church. He was not a, a, a believer, didn't know Jesus personally, and he wasn't able to get to his normal church. And here's what he says. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that didn't matter to me. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was... Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, from Isaiah 45. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but it didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. Look unto me, and be saved. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Aye, he said in broad Essex. Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on you say, we must wait for the Spirit's work. And you have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. That means he ran out of data. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, You look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so obsessed with that one thought. 
I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that, that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ, and you will be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered, and now I can say, ere cinched by faith, I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. The message of Spurgeon, the message of Anna, the message of Simeon is very simply this. Look to Christ to be your redeemer. Look to Christ to be your heart consoler. Look to Christ to be your rescuer, your deliverer. He will not fail all those who look to him. Lord, it's an awesome thing to know that right now that the eye of God is in, involved in looking every one of our hearts. Lord, you know what every person in this room and online in their own home is feeling and struggling with. You know those that deeply need the consoling ministry of Christ in their lives. God, may they look to you to be their comforter. Not a bottle, not a pill, not a relationship, not their own resources, not their bank book. May they look to Christ. Lord, there are others that are in bondage. and They need the powerful, redemptive power of Christ. Lord, may they lean into you. For those that are here that have never personally embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, God, may this be their moment when they look to you. When they experience the forgiveness that Jesus came to die the death that we should have died and to live the life that we should have lived for us, Lord, May we look to Jesus today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.